The Creative Trust podcast acknowledges the traditional owners of the land on which we create and record this podcast as the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. For me, creativity only really flourishes under a process of stress and rigour. And it's by defining those barriers and those boundaries that you often then actually see the creativity try and break out, which is the exciting bit. The Creative Trust podcast is an exploration into the minds of some of the world's best creatives. We are endlessly fascinated with the ephemeral and the intangible. We make sense of it through our creative process. Over the last two decades, we have created countless installations, each one put up, pulled down, each one leaving an enduring mark on its audience. Gloss Creative and our stellar alumni share everything with you, how people become creative and what we know to be true about the creative process. Amanda Henderson founded Gloss Creative as her way of navigating creatively through life, learning early on that she could make audiences fall in love with environments simply by making them feel and experience something. Memories that last long after the physical immersion have gone. It crystallized her long-held belief that your business plan is to harness your unbridled creative force. And creative renewal is your most important weapon over time. Welcome to the Creative Trust. This afternoon, I'm sitting with founders Chris Sanderson and Martin Raymond of the Future Laboratory and Joel Bartfeld from Joel Found. He's back with me to be a part of this brilliant conversation. The Future Laboratory is one of the world's most renowned and most loved future forecasting consultancies. For anyone who has ever been to a trend forecast with the Future Laboratory, you will know the feeling. To hear Chris and Martin present to a live audience is the closest thing to a modern day magic show. With a mix of magnetism, wonder and a large dose of lofty forward thinking inspiration, you are drawn into their future world. After a brief time of feeling very small and somewhat ignorant, you leave the briefing with piles of useful notes and a guarantee that you are now way smarter and cooler than you were at the beginning of the day. I met Chris and Martin back in 2003 when legendary Fashion Festival director Robert Buckingham invited them to speak at the Fashion Festival when I was designing sets across the event. In the past 20 years, I've attended almost all of their forecasts in Melbourne. Over time, their ways of thinking have informed our thinking, confirming when we're on the right track and inspired us with unlimited possibilities. As with most professionals who are at the top of their game, Chris and Martin are generous to the core with their time and their knowledge. There is so much to adore about these two. We adore Chris's supreme cool confidence presenting to a room full of strangers. You can believe anything that Martin will tell you. Trust me, I could listen to his narratives all day long and be assured that the future that he paints will come true. And it has. Martin's best-selling Bible, The Trend Forecaster's Handbook, is simply more proof that they are cooler than us and can see the future before almost anyone else. Chris, Martin, welcome. Joel and I are excited to have you with it's us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Fantastic. Well, we're going to get straight into the questions. I want to know how you became the powerhouses that you are now. In particular, Chris, if you can start... How did your creativity come about when you were a kid, 
were you creative and how did you become creative? I was lucky enough to grow up in a very creative home environment. Uh, my dad was a product designer um, and the kind of person who would lend his hand to anything, would build furniture. I was lucky enough that most of the toys that I received as a child were handmade by my father. Um, though everything uh, around him was something uh, that had been influenced by him and my mum's uh, style, by their interrogation of what they thought was a beautiful object or a useful object. So I grew up in a very considered environment, which I think is a very lucky place to find oneself as a, as a child. And creativity was always encouraged uh, for me and my brothers and sisters. So, I, yeah, I, I just grew up in that environment where creativity was seen as a hugely positive thing and was something to be fostered and something to be welcomed. And what about you, Martin? Um, interesting, I think it was almost the opposite. You know, if uh, when I was growing up, certainly um, the notion of creativity wasn't considered. Uh, if you went to school, there was no question that you were going to be involved in anything creative. It just, again, wasn't permitted. But I actually discovered years later that my mum couldn't actually read. So she used to take with her to banks, post offices, um, an empty glasses case, which if she was asked or if she wanted to have something read to her, she would say, oh, look, I've forgotten my glasses. Could you read out the following? And that really, I guess, informed my love and um, care for books, because I think a lot of people, currently now we take reading books, knowledge for granted. But I always think if you really want your child to love and be precious about books, it's to ban them from looking at them, uh, certainly burn them, and certainly don't allow them to have access to knowledge. And once you do that, you realize the power and the requirement and the need that we must have if, well, to give them what we've done as a business, you know, to move forward. It's important that you actually understand the power and possibility of knowledge. Oh, a provocative start there, Mr. Raymond. You've got to do it because otherwise we, we just take so many things in our lives as, as wrong. What age do you turn it back on? Obviously, I'm being facetious about it, but once I think you understand as a parent uh, to take nothing for granted with your child, you, know, you really have to push them sometimes, you know, to look at things, do things, be creative, challenging, uh, questioning, curious. And these are things that a lot of parents take. Well, of course they don't. Mm. Some of us don't. Mm. Um, mm. We, you, know, you still have parents today who are struggling with basic levels of income, basic uh, mm. you know, access to education. And um, you know, in contrast to my mum, I had an aunt who read vociferously. Uh, each year there was a book of Catholic books, a list of banned books issued by the Catholic Church which she uses a reading list. Fantastic. That was, that was the <laughs> shopping banned, list for I'm her. On it. <laughs> yeah, to go to, to um, London, Charing Cross Road, and buy all of the books carried back in a blue suitcase, which became our library for the year. So that became our sustenance and our knowledge and our food cupboard for how we would live the rest of our year. And were your, was your mum really insistent that you learn to read well. No, that's, I no. mean, that's why, you know, when I say burnt books, she actually burnt my books. Like, would regularly, if I went and bought books on whatever pocket money you would get, uh, I would see, you know, look, there's a bonfire in your garden, which is mm. jolly for a lot of kids, having a bonfire. But when you realize your book's burning, it is quite shocking. So it mm, really makes you definitely. think about the power and the requirement and need to, um, when you're given the access to knowledge, 
an education why you would seize it with both hands. Absolutely. And it's interesting that that's the creative creativity comes out of the knowledge, whereas Chris view was probably more practical in that design. Yeah, without a doubt. I think my sensibility has always been four-dimensional in the way that I think about uh, design and design solutions. Um, but for both of us, I think when we set the business up, there are a couple of very clear objectives. But one of them, and to some extent it's become our motto, is sapere aude, dare to know. And that provocation um, of daring to know the unknowable or to think the unthinkable to say the unsayable is is part of i think our daily practice i don't if i remember correctly i think that was my high school motto yeah it's great <laughs> of course um it, because it was it was the challenge um that you don't accept the norm that you don't accept what you've been told you constantly question and you constantly look for the alternative what was your school education did it help or hinder your creativity um my Education was pretty normal uh, for state school education in the UK um, in that it was moderately good to excellent. I had an inspirational English teacher who taught me that, uh, an absolute love of words and a love of language. He was an inspiring um, English literature teacher. Um, and I had a very good experience um, from sort of my late teens onwards with school. I was lucky enough to go to a fairly progressive school for what in England was called our A-levels. Um, and similarly, I, was, uh, I went to university in London. I went to Goldsmiths College, which is a center for art and for cultural thinking. Um, and so the course I did there was, was very much around four-dimensional art and the, the application of that. So I studied theater and I studied uh, English literature, um, set design, scenography. And so all of that, I think, gave me a very broad outlook on this idea of um, what it means to look at practical design solutions. So when you went, obviously went to university, I mean, I guess this question is almost redundant because I can imagine that you've already decided that you want to work and spend your time doing something creative. Well, yes and no. I, I trained as an actor. So my initial training was as an actor and I spent a good seven years uh, in that in that field, in that area, but very quickly moved on into direction. So spent quite a lot of time then in set design and direction before I realized that I really didn't like actors as individuals, which made having to work with them quite difficult. So I kind of had to start looking for another career. So I, I moved out of theater completely. <laughs> How do you feel about actors today? Oh, some of them are my best friends. <laughs> um, look, I said, yeah. They're great people, aren't they? They are. But for me, that it's, it's, it's all about spatial awareness and it's all about then how you communicate message using as many different uh, media as possible and genres, obviously, in order to get a message through. But through and then through a natural progression that we all go through when you leave university and you start looking for jobs, I kind of landed in, in uh, creative direction and art direction on still images, uh, which was probably the easiest from a professional perspective. So what drives your creativity? Um, I still think I'm really curious about what makes people tick um, and really trying to peel back the layers that reveals uh, an inner sense of self and, and the reason why people behave in certain ways. And most of the visual work that I've always done has always really, to some extent, has never been um, artistic. It's because there's always been a very clear role for it which is about conveying meaning and, and storytelling not to say that art isn't 
but the pictures that I would create with photographers and with stylists and with um, other um, contributors were always designed to tell a very, very specific message. And you can see that in everything from your website to your presentations, that the visual language and the imagery that you use yeah. feels like what you're trying Absolutely. to tell Absolutely. It's very And sometimes strong. that can be really hard work. I mean, when I started off, like everyone, I would have started this journey doing fashion styling and fashion creative direction. And so you'd be used to working with a photographer who was pretty much in those days nearly always male. I have worked with some amazing, did work with some amazing female photographers early on, but the majority of them were male. Um, and this is in the 90s, so f the whole environment could sometimes be very toxic, but was also just very ego-led. So as the creative director or the stylist, you would present an idea to a photographer, and I would say, like, I'm, okay, we're doing a story, and it's all about blue, and we're going to look at the color blue and its relevance in society. And the photographer would go, great, that's amazing. And they would come back a week later, and they'd say, well, there, here are the pictures, and they would all be red. And you'd just go, what are you doing? And they said, well, I kind of looked at blue, but then I thought about red and I loved it. And, you know, with some magazines, that would work because they would look at the pictures and go, these are great. And you went off on a visual journey and you went on an artistic journey and this is fantastic. But for the publication that Martin and I worked on together, which is called Viewpoint, that didn't wash. We had a very, very precise criteria. So if I was shooting blue, I was shooting and would have chosen a, a range of Pantone blues that were the right blues to shoot for that story. And everything would have been assessed and, and conceptualized to within an, an inch of its life, not to um, push out the creativity, but to set the boundaries. For me, creativity only really flourishes uh, under a, a, a process of stress and rigor. And it's by defining those bar barriers and those boundaries that you often then actually see the creativity try and break out, which is the exciting bit. I've noticed um, you're obsessed with everything sci-fi. Um, you you both are. Um, oh, so it's not you. No, you're no, the, no interest but your whatsoever. Visuals, your visuals are so future romantic. When you think about future, you're thinking about what could be. And what should be. And I think probably both of us, either words or visuals, will sit there creating um, what if scenarios about the future. So a lot of the time, if you think about great science fiction or television, books, films, they're really hypothesizing what could come next. Yeah. And I think a lot of the time with businesses, the one thing they fail to do continuously is to look at the what if. They always want the now or the near next. And I think probably as, as writers, visualizers, certainly a viewpoint, you're really looking at creating a bridge to the future as to what or how you could get there. So it's like scenario planning, but the great, I think the great way to do that is to visualize what the thing looks like so you can see it. So when you talk about the future, or Joel talks about the future, you both see it and we agree that it looks the same, tastes the same. So all the time you're just building, um, I guess, frameworks mm -hmm to allow people to perhaps feel more comfortable, feel at ease with it. Because a lot of the time, it's quite threatening. You mm. feel, oh, uh, yeah, now. yeah, we shouldn't really go too far. And I guess our job is to bring it a little further every time. It's a lot of sci-fi doesn't put you at ease. It's Well, it's I guess it, it's, it's meant to be dystopian, isn't it? And our, our view of the future is, you know, we always look at 
what's the best future? Because I always think of it, you know, if we set out to look at the future, why do we always try to make it worse? And why do we imagine bad? Uh, the best we can do is imagine different. Well, actually, it could be like this. And then on top of that, why not make it better? You know, science is agnostic in that sense. It goes neither one way or the other. It's usually when people bend it through a prism of, you know, this light or dystopia, that the thing becomes bad. But generally, science ambles along and we choose which path to take it. And that's part of our job is to take it into a better framework, a better future. Is that not the case? Yeah, I think so. And I, but I think, I, I mean, you raise a really interesting point, Amanda, which is that can you look at uh, a vision of the future that doesn't fall into the aesthetic of sci-fi? Is that possible? And when we were both on Viewpoint, working on Viewpoint magazine, which um, we did for nearly a decade, for us, you know, the moments that we dropped out of that kind of, you know, quotation marks, um, sci-fi aesthetic, it actually became quite difficult often to successfully transmit a message based on what a better future might look like because it was instantly more believable um, and warm and human. And as a result, people could easily understand it, but in a way that meant that they didn't necessarily believe it was part of a possible future. It's a really interesting uh, sort of area in terms of how do you actually take somebody into the future and show them a give them a glimpse of what things might look like without it feeling either this this notion of quotation mark sci-fi or dystopian um i mean i remember a, a, a shoot we did um quite some time ago now when we did a whole issue on food the future of food and we looked at the idea of trademarking scales fish scales so that they each had these tiny tiny markers that showed the origin and the provenance of the fish and it was the idea that it, it was biogenetics, basically. So it was looking at that idea of how you could see that um, impacting on the, the sale and the, and the provenance of that particular uh, piece of meat or that piece of fish. And of course, now we've got to the stage where we are, to some extent, bioengineering so that you can identify an organism at that level. Um, and yet to, to try and portray that in the way that felt believable and engaging was and is still I think quite tricky. Martin with the sci-fi thing just coming back to it obviously the art direction and and you talk about you started on viewpoint is that when you were writing? Yes because you know to go back I guess to the original point when I was saying about you know you're not allowed to read and write I think it really compels you to look at you know what opportunities they are and how you can use storytelling both to explain your own life but also how to write about it so while you know people say that was what a terrible mother you had and sometimes I kind of thank her because she reminded me of the power of words of thinking of visualization and I guess Viewpoint was probably the first magazine that brought together this sense of building the future three-dimensionally describing it and then what words, because a lot of the time we're having to make up words to describe the future. So if you think about... Um, and you're really good at making up words. It's, it's, it's kind of, in some ways, science fiction writers do it. You know, if you think of 1984, you think of the shape of things to come, uh, you know, think of, of um, you know, anything where you've had to 
create what, as Chris said, a familiar future, but maybe add different levels and, and, and kind of points to it. So words like leisure, which we now use in the language, and we put that together as business leisure, you know, fidgetal is a term that pretty much everybody who works in retail now talks about. But again, we had to really think about creating that term. It's physical, digital, but we wanted to capture something that was a blending. So really you're also trying to use words to create a bridge between what we're familiar with and also what potentially comes next. So to Chris's point about the, the, um, you know, the notion of dystopian, our view is how can you build not better, not just different, but also opportunity. Because the third bit about the future is really unlocking opportunity. You know, that's what we always look at is what can we do to make this journey intelligible? What can we do to improve on past efforts? Thirdly, because generally we're, we're dealing with business, what can we do to open a door for business to step in and perhaps, principally using the term exploit, but I always think about that thing, you know, the improved opportunity to allow the thing to grow uh, you know, into a different market or a different arena or category. I was just going to say, um, in response to what Chris was talking about, it's interesting because Amanda seems like a clear disciple of you two, like, and knowing that oh, you followed, yeah. followed the guys for, for 20 plus years. I think what's amazing about Amanda's work and Gloss Creative is that it, it always looks directional. It doesn't ever see, you know, you're not referencing things that have been seen. You're projecting the, the, that your forms into the future. So it, and it's funny to talk, to hear the origin story of that because I can see it in your work. Yeah, it's interesting. And obviously one of the bigger questions I've got is around renewal, like the key to remaining relevant and doing, mm. you know, moving forward. I think is about renewal mm. and getting a system, literally a system for doing yeah. that. And I think that's that's probably the key to it all. And I've heard you talk about fashion. You know, obviously fashion for me is a very, very important tool because it's way faster than anything else. So you can easily tap into what's happening in fashion because it moves so much faster and you can pick and choose what you think is relevant from that. And you can, I've heard you say fashion runs towards the future. And I think that that is so true. Definitely. Um, so you've talked about viewpoint. I'm assuming that's where you met. No, not at all. I mean, so Martin and I, we're, we're both life partners as well as professional partners. We, yeah, we were actually introduced by um, a mutual friend, um, a, a UK DJ called uh, Paul Gambaccini, who, had a fabulous, he's an American by birth, had an, a brilliant Radio uh, One uh, hits show. Uh, lovely guy, very nicely introduced us. And yeah, that that was the, the start of uh, our relationship. But very quickly, we did start to work together. So Martin, um, very soon after we met, was appointed editor of Fashion Weekly, which was at the time the UK's version of Women's Wear Daily. Um, and interestingly, he'd been working on Screen International, which is our... UK big film uh, media. Um, when we met, people were so surprised. We dated for six months. We did. Without kissing. Yeah. This is the beginning of, you know, early online dating, uh, the beginning of, you know, where you had what's now called Gaydar, yeah. as opposed to Grinder. And it was really funny. Um, now when I'm chatting to people in the 20s, I met somebody recently who said, oh God, I've just done this most amazing thing. I've gone to a pub and I've met somebody in a pub. <laughs> and they were described as if it was the future. And I go, hang on a minute, that's what I used to do. And I told them 
how we met and how we were dating. They were just absolutely gobsmacked. When Martin landed the job at Fashion Weekly, it was very interesting because he sort of went, I know nothing about fashion. And I was like, oh, I kind of know a bit about fashion. So I, I gave him a crash course in fashion for about the first three weeks. And within three weeks, his knowledge, of course, superseded mine because that's the way Martin's brain works. It's voracious and it's sponge-like. So he just learned this industry very, very quickly. And our paths coincided on a couple of projects. Uh, Martin then went to Ireland, back to Ireland to um, present uh, an Irish clothes show called Head to Toe. Head to Toe, which I have to say, the, the Irish Times described me and said he was more wooden than a park bench <laughs> in Hyde Park. <laughs> <laughs> Just from presenting, I have huge, as much as I, I, you know, I present a lot, I do public talks, I get huge panic attacks on occasion. And so on this particular one, I had to introduce uh, a woman who'd made a pullover out of a sheep's kind of um, back. And I had to describe this thing, you know, from the sheep's back to the store in your shop, you know, uh, so-and-so, so-and-so will deliver you the great pullover. And I delivered it 25 times before I could get the take right. And on the 25th of occasion, having just got through the final thing, I fell into a ditch. <laughs> pulled the camera person in with me Fantastic. and the sound recordist is there is there footage still remaining there is that? footage actually if you go on to youtube and you look up head to toe and uh, the designer i give you the clue the designer's name was lynn marr and it actually became her best selling sweater pullover <laughs> because it was so yeah. famous just pause the recording so we can look that up now. So, <laughs> so to go on to keep going on this long slightly meandering no, this is story, great um uh we both then subsequently ended up at the London College of Fashion. Uh, Martin headed up their BA in fashion promotion course and taught journalism. And I taught visual communication. Yeah, this is bearing in mind. I still, to go back to this thing about not reading, I hadn't actually been to college and I hadn't actually at this point done a BA. So I was teaching a BA course to some of the most advanced students in the fashion business without having, and I, I mentioned up front, I don't have a degree, to say, but you have knowledge and position and authority and I think that's the other bit that you gather in your life journey is where you build up a store of knowledge. But really, it reminded me doing this course with these great students who really committed themselves. I needed to go back to college. But it's interesting that at that, that point, you need to remind yourself why it's important to learn. And these students who are there to learn reminded me of why I need to go back and to learn. So then by, by segue to about the mid-90s, and we both come home from our separate day's work and kind of go, I've just had a really interesting meeting. I've just been interest, offered a really interesting job. And it's like, oh yeah, so have I. And bizarrely, totally serendipitously, Martin had been in conversation with a, a guy who was relinquishing the part-time role of editor of this magazine called Viewpoint, which was, it was a biannual, it was twice a year. So it was something you could do along amongst other things. And I had been to see the creative team, unbeknownst to Martin, uh, who had offered me a job to join them as one of the creative directors on the visual content. So we both came home and realized that we were both going to work on this publication together. But I was in charge. <laughs> that's, that's what I liked. And within six months, we sort of actually, it was the only time we've been really ruthless. We actually enacted a bit of a coup and we went to the publisher and said, look, the current team that you've got are really not pulling their weight. They're not particularly good. They're stuck in their ways. They see this as a color forecasting magazine, and it's so much more than that. And so we offered a vision of what we thought we could do. We put together a business plan. And he said, yes. So we cleared out the old team. Uh, we took over completely. We had the magazine redesigned. 
um, immediately we, we we scooped up three awards that, that next year at the Magazine Design Awards in the UK for best typography, best magazine design, and best visual direction. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that kind of set the tone. And then soon after that, we started getting calls from people saying, "We love what you've done with this magazine. Do you know an agency with the same kind of philosophy?" And we'd be going, "No, sorry, can't possibly. You know, no, sorry." And then the penny drops, and it was like, "Okay, there's an opportunity here." So, and this is obviously, we're talking mid nineties, we're talking about this massive change in lifestyle culture around the continued growth of grunge, the early days of hipster. And that sense that suddenly everything wasn't just coming from the street. It was this sense that it was permeating all levels of direction around the lifestyle industries. And this was also the time at which other businesses were beginning to respond and react like a fashion business so suddenly it wasn't just the case that it was a fashion business that was reinventing itself four times a year so were furniture companies you know so were car companies or trying to at least and that that all marries up with the arrival of the internet uh, uh, exactly and it's it comes hand in hand with just this growth in terms of the desire for knowledge and understanding of trend and intelligence around consumer behavior so we were lucky enough when we set the business up in, tw in 2001, despite the fact that we set it up the week of 9-11, so straight into a kind of global recession. It was at the time when everyone was trying to understand how the old hierarchies around style, taste, structure, consumption were really beginning to fracture. And then, and henceforth, Future Lab was born. Yes, it was. Um, with some very clear directives as well. I mean, we've mentioned one, this idea of dare to know, Harry Aude, but the other was, was that from the get-go, we, we always wanted to be a business that actually was never responsible for making stuff. To this day, there is very, very little that you can find that has got the Future Laboratory stamped on it. Uh, we, we did a recycled pencil once. We have done one project with Selfridges, which was fragrance that where our name is on the bottle. In 20 years, we have absolutely resolutely stuck to the principle that we do not want to be responsible for adding to the burden of stuff on this planet. So we trade in intangibles, we create concepts, um, thinking and ideas, but we don't make things. So can you describe the future laboratory for us? What, what's the emotional core of the brand? It's simply looking at the possibilities of making things happen in the future. You know, a lot of businesses are about the now, and a lot of businesses talk about heritage. But we always say to our clients, you must think about legacy. What would you like to leave? Mm. Uh, if it's now 2050, if it's 2030, and you're where you want to be, how did you get there? And how can we help you to build that framework forward into the future? And a lot of the times is, you know, you're asking to do it without adding, this is point, more stuff, uh, without adding more damage to the planet, whether people or, or your profits. But also, how can you build something that is radically different enough for people to remember it? So, you know, it's not another car, not another bike, not another plane. It's something that really sits above and beyond. When you put that challenge to, to a lot of CEOs, they just revert back to stuff. We're going to make a cheaper, faster, maybe more sustainable version of X. And I go, great, but that's not legacy material. You know, that's just you become the Woolworths of the 21st century. I can yeah. do it quicker, cheaper, better, but not necessarily somebody that's going to help me 
uh, fundamentally change the nature of how we live and how we, we kind of potentially consume, which is, is the big debate question just, just, just we always think about. Everything is about growth. And we were saying, if the future is about degrowth, you know, pulling back on resource, pulling back on damage, pulling back on, well, it's not pulling back on innovation. It's not pulling back on ambition. It's not pulling back on opportunity. And they are the things that make people get out of bed and go forward. Making another piece of stuff in itself pays potential salaries. It doesn't really make you get out of bed. And when you look back, you're now 80 and you're looking back to your life. You know, I, I made what? More sweets of the pick and mix counter in X store or whatever. It so really you're pushing work. your clients, or not pushing them, but you're showing them a way of, in some instances, a radical way forward or a more innovative way forward. The question I've got is how do your creative processes support this level of innovation? Even for you to come up with the concepts and the thinking, which is pretty amazing and always inspiring. What is it in the future laboratory? What is the creative process that is supporting all of this brilliance? Well, it always has to come back for me um, to humanity. So humanity, I think, as a quality sits at the, at the core of our business, which is why actually I kind of winced a bit and I, I stiffened when in the introduction you, you used the word cool to describe us because if there's one thing we're not, it's cool. Everything about yeah, the future laboratory cool. <laughs> is that we're hot. We're about passion. We're about warmth. We're about heat. Whereas the, even the word cool, just that sense of froideur that it suggests, distance, a standoffishness, a haughtiness, is everything we try and not be. So for us, everything is about passion and it's about warmth and it's about collaboration. It's about working with people to enlighten them. It's about being inspiring. It's about being progressive it's about being fearless in the face of challenge but it's also about empowering people with the information and, and the knowledge that they need the insights that they need so for example at the moment you know i've set my creative team the challenge on um, lsn global our, our trends platform the insight intelligence platform to where wherever possible ensure that there is always a human being in every single photograph that we now use on the site which when you think about the fact that a lot of what we're doing is showing uh, interior spaces, stores, buildings, is nigh and impossible because buy me a fucking architectural photographer who wants to feature pe people in their pictures. You know, they think people are dirty, nasty, squalid things that look ugly in their beautiful buildings. Whereas we're trying to actually show how these buildings are used by real people. So we currently have a real challenge when it comes to the fact that we're trying to humanize our websites that by showing humans interacting with other humans, um, people using those products and services and engaging and interacting in those spaces. But that for us is a, is a massively important creative aesthetic, which is how do I populate my visual world with people, real people? I think also that there is, um, you know, if you imagine what I call the journey and the solution, you know, the journey makes up about three quarters of the thing. And that's where I think a lot of businesses cheat. They want to get to the solution. You know, they want to get to, this is what the answer. I go, okay, but what if you're asking the wrong question up front? You're going to get the wrong answer. So a lot of the journey time, which is, you know, kind of think about Joel travel experience, Joel found, a lot of the time, it's about the journey. It's about the immersion, the experience, the um, openness to new things, 
exposure to different kinds of extremes. As soon as you put some, somebody in a different atmosphere, they react differently. And part of our job is to incubate ideas in areas that generally cause a bit of stress, tension, challenge. I mean, somebody said to me, oh, you know, we kind of work in a safe space. That is not a way to guarantee any kind of innovation or any kind of solution. On the other hand, if you expose people to discomfort, as soon as you make people uncomfortable about where they are, what they're doing, the things they're asking, they start thinking about how to get out of it, i.e. solution. So a lot of the time, rather than businesses try to, to make people um, you know, feel this thing is okay, if you're in the area of innovation and the space of innovation, you should be making your teams all the time feel you know, the heat quickly. It's not like the boiling frog principle. Yeah. You know, you, that, that way we all get used to it and nothing happens. So really have to. And one of the, the things we've discovered is put people in different environments. As soon as you change your environment, you change the space, you change the optics, the sound, the smell, instantly they become awakened. And as soon as they're awake, you can then start asking. It's like watching an energy shift. They go, wow, okay, maybe we should try this. People become more optimistic and open when placed in dangers or placed in areas that are unfamiliar. Because they try, they have to come up with new solutions and do things differently. Therefore, the result is well, different. Well, what do we do? We put people into a white room in a dull office with, with flickering LED lights. And then we try to make excuses by calling it the white space. White space innovation. Anybody who has ever studied any kind of innovation will know that the last place you have solution or an idea is in a box. And when you're in the shower, you're on a country walk, you're swimming, if you look at where all the solutions come from, that's when they happen. So you're suggesting workshops in the shower? Uh, workshops in the shower and workshops in the forest, anything to get you out of the room. Because like, you know, evidence just supports the fact that in a room, a white box, the only thing you're likely to do is die. Man, I, I, want, sorry, I just want to come back quickly to what you talked about in terms of the, the idea of legacy in a commercial context and how you compel people to legacy because it takes a real fortitude to sort of think beyond tomorrow the following week three months down the track and you know legacy is a much longer term it's 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 the, it's the burning platform isn't it the best way to guarantee legacy is to set fire to the platform as of course what's happening to the planet the planet is burning the second thing you do is you make it uh you, you penalize people for not making decisions as ceos there's a current thing at the moment debate about ecocide that it should be a statute book crime that uh, pretty much you're going to be prosecuted if you commit any crime where you're damaging the planet, damaging your people, or using your profit to disguise the fact that you're damaging the planet. And I think if you put these things into place, then CEOs, he, she, they, will have to consider legacy. Because it's like a cold case, isn't it? We don't have the DNA trace now to prove that you're guilty. But in 20 we years' will. time, somebody <laughs> will advance the science. And I just go, if you put that in front of a CEO or their, their, their you know, SLT teams, they would surely try to get it right. Rather than at the moment, the worst thing that could happen to us is fine. No, cost of doing business. Cost of doing business, which you put already in a bank account. So the legacy bit, I think, is, is you know, huge vision, uh, great ambition. But there is a legislative requirement, which I believe um, we shy away from because it just doesn't suit the current, what I call the planet management team. Uh, but a generation behind us will not be so forgiving. You know, those people in the 20s now who see the crimes be committed but don't have the, the skills and the frameworks to articulate guilt 
will not say to us, well, you didn't know it was damaging. In fact, you know it's damaging. So they will come after us if we don't get it right. Interestingly enough, there's a British skincare brand called Faith in Nature, which has just appointed a human to their board to be the legal representative for nature on their board. And they, they are charged, and their legal job is to represent nature in every decision that the board makes moving forward. That, that makes complete sense. As you said, if there's no framework for, um, I guess they call that in the public service, regulation, and if there's, if there's no accountability, if there's no process to be called to account, why would they? You know, so I guess the question is how do governments eventually mandate and make legal, you know, constitutionally or whatever, to make that happen. Yeah, it's happening. The United Nations are already working with frameworks. I mean, remember, there are th 33 island states which are pretty much sinking. So they've started pushing forward legislation which requires reparations, one, which hardly anybody objects to, that if our island sinks beneath the ocean, well, then we need money for our people to escape. Where are they going to live? So that's already in place. But what if knowingly you choose a route in your business, like an oil business or whatever, and that contributes to global warming? I just have to make a fairly straightforward connection. And then at that point, this is where the United Nations framework will kick in. Your business is liable. The initial is, is liability by business. But then CEOs who make a decision, this is where they're trying to track it back to. That's more difficult because we won't want to admit it because surely we're all involved in something. It's a bit corrupt and a bit suspect. We really don't want to own up to it. But again, it's pretty close to being signed off, you know, under the Rome Agreement. So why not um, a case where uh, there's an interim framework? You know, those most at risk have a right and a say into where money comes to and from and which nations pay. And I think that was the, the last climate agreement we've had at. Um, there's been the, 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 the current um, debate about the oceans, where there's been a final agreement on, on how we manage our oceans. Uh, it can't be far away where we have to agree how we manage culpability and how we manage um, restitution and how we also manage the process. You know, if you have at The Hague, um, you know, international war crimes, it's not a kind of a huge leap to imagine we'll have planetary crimes Similar and thing. courts sitting and court. in the same way. It has to happen soon. Well, especially when you're talking about legacy. I think um, it's interesting. We wouldn't have had a conversation maybe 20 years ago about you talking about legacy and those kinds of things. How, how do you see renewal for you personally in your business? Like, you're talking about this now and you're always moving forward. You're thinking about and talking about the things that are relevant now. What is this process for renewal? What, how do you do, how do you come up with new things? How do you keep driving towards that newness? Every day is, is different. I, I don't have any two days that are similar in terms of a, a, a work pattern or a work process or really have any relationship sometimes with the previous day so I personally I feel that there's always that process that every day I go to work it's going to be a different day and there are going to be different challenges and different opportunities that will require different solutions um, I think also 
we're surrounded by a relatively young team. Um, I would say that at least 70% of our team are under the age of 35. And the majority of them are highly intelligent, curious, insatiably curious people who are just constantly showing you newness. And so you either find that exciting and invigorating, or it tires you out. And it doesn't, I don't think it tires either of us out when we're constantly being shown. And it's not that it's newness for newness sake. No, it's because it means something. It is that sense of renewal. It is that sense that somebody is now looking at a problem in a different way and coming up with a different solution. Somebody is thinking as a result of something else about how to do something differently, or thinking differently about it. I think it's also because just on this issue of young people being the people that bring knowledge and insight, like, maybe sometimes. But I still think that, you know, you're... you're we tend to slip into the ages trap that young people are bearers of knowledge and old people are fighting to keep things back because really they don't want to change and they want things different. And it always surprises me how many young people are really conservative. You know, they, they, we're talking about non-binary at the moment. And I go, okay, wouldn't it be better if we didn't assign gender at birth at all? If we didn't have male, female, Doesn't whatever. Matter. I said, what you keep arguing is we want... You know, a third assignment, a fourth assignment, a fifth. So it's kind of nonsense because we're adding more potential. Because there will be more. There'll be more. People will see themselves in different ways. Yeah. And, and therefore, you know, you know, an older person looking at this would probably go, hang on. The issue is not the number of assignments. The issue is about removing from the beginning. So when you're born, you're not assigned anything. You can then choose if you wish, because sometimes the choice could be, you know, straight away. It could be later, but it's tied into religion. It's tied into, to, you know, senses. It's tied into the way families are structured. And where I find that when you bring this argument forward, which I think is, is, is increasingly legitimate, you go, oh, that's too far in the future. We need to think about, you know, just the third assignment. So I, I, I find the people who most object to that are people who are younger. It's almost while we want to expand on choice, we don't want to expand on possibility. And choice is never the same as possibility. Choice just gives us more things to get wrong, but possibility means we can jump over the issue and get to the next stage, which is really, I guess, current evolution. You know, we, we were kind of working on heart, working on body, working on genetics. Uh, we've made such advances in science, it will be possible to build humans in such a different way that the consequence, you know, the arguments about gender and sexuality will just seem quite sad and quite uh, narrow and, and kind of promangled. We'd be going, really? You, you believe that at some point, that somebody at birth would turn out to be male yeah. or female yes. or yes. other? Yes. Um, so that's a bit, I think sometimes we, we shouldn't always assume that uh, being younger necessarily allows you more access to the solution. If anything, you could simply be extending the choice, and in which case you're not really looking at, to the point, you know, saying about legacy or opportunity, or what the future could look like if we remove the terrible tyranny of prejudice and, and dare I say, choice. Sometimes choice is the thing that increases damage to the planet, not removes it. But me personally, I do think working with 35-year-olds is amazing because they are so open and they're highly skilled and they're at that bloom phase, what I'd call of their careers, where they know stuff 
and yet they're super smart. Like you said, everyone in your team is super smart. Um, and that drives an engine room of creativity. And then I feel like if you if you're working with people like that, there's still this great opportunity. And this is one of the questions I've got is about vision, you know. So I'm interested to know, you know, if you think of action as being, you know, maybe the team and you're the vision, do you create the vision first and then action comes? Or do you take action and that evolves the vision? That's a really good question. And I think there are a number of different answers you could give to that question, depending on which part of the business you're looking at, because we, we run two almost sort of parallel businesses. Um, one being um, an editorial research business that is pushing out content. And so very much there's a team there that are driving this kind of desire to look at newness and by doing so presenting a vision of the future through their constant inquiry and their observation and their exercise to, to learn and find more and then within the future laboratory there is a process that potentially is moving at a slightly slower pace which is where there's the opportunity for thinking to coalesce around often around a central idea which then drives forward the bigger themes that we might look at as a business over time. So one could say there's, there's a, a little bit of both. When Martin and I set the business up, and indeed a lot of what Martin's study um, in the Trend Forecasters Handbook um, is about, is looking both at the science of forecasting, but also describing the methodology that we created that is sort of our proprietary technique, which we call cultural triangulation. And that, at its heart, for those of the listeners that are old enough to remember what it's like to actually read a map, and maybe if you were a Boy Scout or a Girl Guide, you might have learned how to use a compass. But underneath that process of map reading was, the, was triangulation. It was this idea that you took coordinates, and you basically took three coordinates in, in order to pinpoint where you are now so that you could then look at the fourth coordinate, the, the point where you wanted to get to that journey. And so we used that as a metaphor to describe a process of cultural triangulation, where those three points of, of taking a reading in order to understand where you are now before you can think about mapping the future, we transpose those into culture by talking about intuition, observation, and interrogation. And for us, intuition is the spearhead of that, sits first, because professionally, what we are doing is intuiting. We are sensing. Faith Popcorn always called it brailing culture. It's this idea that you can actually feel what's going on around you. And anyone who has any real savvy in business is doing this every day. You walk into your retail environment, you walk into your factory, you walk into your design studio, and you are in touch with the sensibility of what's going on around you, but also the sensibility of your industry. You are sensing the small changes that are happening around you that are going to determine what's coming next but as we all know most businesses tend not to like to respond to intuition businesses are still run um, courtesy of cfos who tend to be very risk averse and so they want to see the metrics behind that so 
the methodology that we've created looked or tried to find a way using academic models that we ratified that intuitive response to what was coming next through that process of observation and interrogation. So I feel that this is happening. How can I actually back that up and support it? Well, I'm going to look, I'm going to watch, I'm going to see, and then I'm also going to interrogate. I'm going to ask questions. And for us, we're not a market research business. So that doesn't mean we're going to ask the consumer questions because what does the consumer know? They only know what they know. We will go and ask experts about how that industry is changing because they're the ones who really understand. So almost every piece of what we do is as a response to us going out and asking questions of experts within any industry about what is happening to their industry. How is it changing? What are the new advancements? What are the new technologies? What are the shifts that they're beginning to see? And through that three-pronged process, we find that we can come up with pretty accurate understandings of both how a consumer mindset is likely to shift over anything from a three to five year period to how an industry sector is likely to move over a three to five year period. You've built up, I would imagine, over the last 20 years, quite an archive then of experts oh, in we, their fields. We have an amazing, yeah. a, an amazing black book of names. And because we, we have this editorial business that sits at our heart, we're very good at getting people to, to want to talk to us because of, I, I think we're good listeners, but we also, we write well and we credit well. So I don't think anyone ever feels that they've been taken advantage of when we've gone to them and asked them a question. But, but yeah, and I mean, it, it, we have written a report about almost anything. If you can stick the words the future of in front of something, I can guarantee you our team have written about it. Yeah. So just on that, why do you think it is, like in terms of marketing your business, um, I know that you've got a marketing manager, but it seems to me that the way you've just gone about your business and who you've included and brought into your orbit has marketed it itself is, is that true i think we've always deliberately chosen to remain under the radar if that's kind of what you're saying which is that we're not there front and center uh we don't tend to broadcast loudly about who we are and what we do we're often known as sort of a, a best kept secret and a, a lot of our clients prefer it that way mm, mm. i think because of the nature of our work we spend our time working in the future so it's a bit like you're not just ahead of the curve but because you are ahead of it you're invisible and unless businesses are looking in that area or in that direction it's very difficult They're sometimes not yeah, for, the, yeah. for them to see us and if i look at, at um our list of active we call it futures 1000 which is a list of active experts that we will speak to fairly regularly what is interesting is some of them, and this is what I was fond of using when we produce a report, I'll go, oh, hang on, we did this report five years ago on the future of biotech. Now it's time to get that expert. And sometimes it's as easy as taking their original quote, which was looking at what the world would be like in, in 2023 and using it as it is, or going back to them and, and realizing that they were already thinking about this period. And a lot of time, our business is about uh, constantly reminding people that the future is about to happen, reminding them it has happened, and now reminding them that we are the experts in telling you how these things come about. So there's always a, you know, first time, it's like, you know, first time it's a tragedy, second time it's a farce, third time it's a trend. 
And that's kind of how we operate as a business. And I always think we, our, our great strength is that we don't forget, we keep reminding. And sometimes working with CEOs, it can take five years for them to go, hang on a minute, chaps, we spoke about this. And at the time, it just seemed a bit fanciful that you were talking about how veganism could be reinvented as plant-based and that plant-based would become the dominant food uh, category in, in kind of travel experience and restaurants. How, how do so, you not get frustrated? Like we went through this. It's, it's, <laughs> We've told you on two other seminars. So Chris is, is probably the patient one. I have the tendency <laughs> to be crabby and cranky and impatient because I always think that, you know, you're not making stuff. I remember once going into to, um, the States and they took me aside at, at, at um, immigration. They said, oh, uh, what do you do? And I said, I'm a forecaster. This went more quiet. She said, uh, can, you, yeah, she said <laughs> can you step behind the screen, please? Okay, so I was behind the screen and um, she said, okay, look, didn't want you to ask in front of my husband, but tell me what's going to happen tomorrow. She held out her palm. So she thought I, it was as close as that. And a lot of the time, this is where I think people believe that you're simply being fanciful. They're not believing the evidence, they're not believing the proof. But, and this is why on our network, if you go to it, we carry as much data about our past trend forecasting. So all of our trends now are linked to three years ago, eight years ago, 10 years ago. It's the roots and the tree. I always remind people that what we are, or what we have is a big, fantastic root system that stretches out and then it's growing up and the branches are simply mirroring what's happening beneath. And what's happening beneath is the past. That's your heritage bit. And what's above is your legacy bit. And I get, you know, our view is that we're trying to help you achieve that better speed to growth and speed to opportunity, but also to trust us. So good clients who've been with us for 20 years understand sometimes these things are not going to manifest because a lot of clients in fashion particularly want solutions for the next six months. You know, it's a mm. short order, short, uh, smooth thing. The same in food, drinks, like what a lot of drinks company. What's the trend for drinks in summer 2024, which is what I was asked last week. We can do that. I like to just look at my report from 2022 and go, okay, this is your 2024 forecast. Pretty accurate. Yeah. But what really is, what is going to happen? Because a lot of plans take more than five years, take 10 years. So you need to be able to build that. Can I give you an accurate, clear, in-depth forecast to help you? Yes, I can. But most companies won't do that. Why? Well, CEOs last no more, if they're lucky, seven years if they're canny and desperate and aware of they're going to be rumbled and caught out they'll be gone and fine and that's the bit that we know when they come to us my thinking is how long are you going to be in this job mm. is it worth my effort giving you a forecast which you're not interested in because you're going to be gone and leaving the gate shut while somebody else is left to carry that's the big mm. problem i think mm. we have as a business I, I think the way you frame it the past is the best selling tool for the future right You've, or I'm going to use that on my strap line. You've yeah. summed it up. <laughs> You've summed it up. Evidential proof yeah. that you are what you say yeah. you are. You've been in business for 20 years. Thinking about your business, what's made you the happiest about your business? Oh, um, I, I think it's really watching the team flourish, uh, watching our team grow. Um, the events that we do where we bring all sorts of different people together um, and seeing how people respond in the same room, I think is always for me a, a fantastic part of what we do and what we deliver. Um, it's also been an amazing part of our journey 
seeing people come and go and leave and start their own careers and do some pretty amazing things. And that, for me, the, the journey of our alumni is, is also a, something that does make me very happy. That is, yeah. Joel and I had this very conversation at our 20 years as well. I didn't set out to grow a team, really. I mean, I set out to do things. But at the end of the day, after 20 years, the thing that I am most happy about is actually the people and the alumni oh, totally. and the friends that I've made. Well, I mean, one of the it's, other reasons. That's that, the best thing. One of the other reasons I set the business up was I'm a really crap freelancer. Um, and so I wanted to have people around me. So I didn't want to work in isolation. I did not want to be a freelancer. So I needed company. So I set up a company. And it, and, and I feel similarly in terms of collaborative effort. Yeah. It's you, You're an artist if you're on your own. Yeah. You know, it's you're an artist, but to collaborate. I mean, obviously, I grew up in VM. It's a team. It's a team sport, if you totally. like. Everything you do, the brainstorming, the production, the creation, is the delivery. It's with a team, yeah. and I think surprisingly, sometimes founders set out to do one thing, but when you reflect and you go, actually, that's what they call deep reward. You know, when you actually can feel that, when as you said, when you see team members of your alumni doing amazing things. That's pretty inspiring as well, I think. Martin, when were you happiest? <laughs> Listen, I think it's it's um, Chris's point about the um, what we call our alumni. And that sounds quite sinister, but we, we have that yeah. name. There's like probably about three, 400 people. Mm. And we do regular meetings. And what is great is not just to see how, you know, people have grown, either developed their own businesses or contributed to other businesses, but they always remind us that the thing was a great, um, you know, conflict partnership where we were always out of agreement with each other. We always could fight in the office. You could always kind of go, well, I disagree with you completely. And, and that attrition and that challenge and that willingness, not just to disagree, but to be able to disagree and see it as a vital part of creativity is, they say, and I, I don't take their word for it, this is, my gosh, it's gone missing. Because now we have to agree. We have to be collegiate. We have to, um, you know, not be nice, but we can't have those open, argumentative, big debates, which they felt led to those great momentous moments. We go, wow, this is really different, big. So I do think that it has taught me that we, we need now to build back into, not our creative processes, but generally a sense of managed conflict, like a sense of challenge and the sense that, you know, when you meet people, 20 years on, um, they remind you of things that we missed out on. They said, we missed doing this. We couldn't do that. Why didn't you listen to us about that? And the more you have that, the more you become open to people and areas and places that maybe you think, mm, you know, the idea is too advanced and that. But in, in conflict is where you get some kind of solution and you also fun. Better solutions. Yeah, an adventure. You know, the other big thing is we miss out on how much we enjoyed our businesses when we were starting out because we didn't have any money. You know, we, we didn't have any clients and therefore you had to take lots of risks to get those things in place. And now, of course, you've got the big client list. You've got big teams around you. Waterloos. Profits to hit, targets to be made. And I think sometimes that does remove some of the incentive to be risky and creative in the way that the client maybe expects, expects us to be. But I always think the more people thought, go, oh, that's a great idea. I'm not really getting that the better the idea is, because this is how we set out. You then refine it, you re-keep thinking it, you incubate it, you go back to the market. And I think this is, this is where a lot of the time, um, you know, we're lucky because we work with a lot of incubators 
and new brands, but most businesses don't. And that sense of not having that challenge, that risk, I think is the thing that begins to kill business. It yeah, I definitely do. I definitely do. I think there's such an education piece around, it's like people don't do debating at school now. You know, that exercise where you leave your ego over here and you're debating a subject. You're talking about different things. No one's better or worse. It doesn't reflect on you. We're having a discussion about interesting or different or newness, those sorts of things. I do find in often executives at quite a high level, there is an inability to do that. And I often get very surprised by CFOs and CEOs who have not, I don't know whether it's do the internal work themselves. You need to take some of yourself up here and just park it here and participate in the concept, the thinking, the job, what's right for the business. How can we move this forward? This type of thinking at that high level, I'm so shocked and surprised that it does not exist, even now, um, let alone, you know, there be a creative head, you know, or a woman, yeah. right, you know. And they don't that, even sit on, the, if you think about it, these yeah, people don't sit in senior so leadership. It's surprising to me. I can't, like, yeah, I think we need to bring back debating in school. I really do. But it, is there, is there, there was a really interesting piece in the Harvard Business Review where he was he just simply posing a question. Said, Look, you know, if you speak to um, uh, kind of workers in any business, they always say if the top three uh, management or senior leadership teams are not open to be challenged, that's, that's what they believe. But then he said, what would you like most as a key worker in the business? They go, safe space. Well, you can't have both. You can't have a team at the top who are not open to be challenged and a team who work with them who say they want safe spaces because already you're, you're, you're shutting down the, the kind of bulwarks to allow that creativity to flow, conflict to thrive, and solution to be generated. So in some ways, we need to almost to re-educate and rethink the contract of work. While you have a right to be protected in work, have you a right to have your brain unchallenged in that job. Mm, well, I agree. You know, I so that's totally the thing, agree. is that we need to relook really at how these things can be remodeled for the 21st century where you're protected, I'm protected. Our lame managers are not protected, but also the, the worker who thinks, well, I want to work in a safe space. Well, don't live in a hole. Don't come to an <laughs> office or a place where there's risk and challenge is always in front of you. You have to deal with that. You have to learn to do it because that way you grow as a person you develop into a role or you grow better, you become greater. When we're starting out, the projects that would make me feel the sickest, you know, like wake up at 2am, you know, that sort of feeling were the ones that were going to be fantastic. I knew if I had that sick feeling, it was going to be fabulous or it was going to be okay because I'm trying harder and I'm taking the steps to make it better. So it is, and, and, and it is better. It's it's learning, but obviously, what we're I guess what we're trying to do now is to remove, uh, you know, that failure as being you know, you know an optional exit from the business. Because I think there was that fear at one point in business that you failed, pretty much you were out, or at least you were relegated to to the kind of benches. And I think uh, what you also understand with any kind of creative urge or solution or journey is that failure is a vital part 
of the process of succeeding. Because as Absolutely. soon as you fail, you learn so much about systems, so much about processes, so much about your own um, ability to be agile and flexible. And I think that's the bit that perhaps we also need to back in, it's not just the right to fail, but to understand and analyze failure. You know, the black box principle. Once we see the failure, we have recorded it. We can build failure back into, somebody said, you're weaving a rope to success. And the problem is most businesses, the margins, profit, dull CEOs and that, you know, failure, they say they don't mind failure. Oh my God, that's so Australian. Uh, don't worry if you fail. Do not fail in Australia. You will be crucified. It's, it's not true. Do not believe them. It's not true. And we true. all collude with it. We all say, the, we parrot the same thing at meeting, you know, management meetings and stuff like that. So uh, now we're going to talk about something that's uh, very close to my heart, travel. And obviously travel is a tool for your business. And you guys travel a lot or in Australia annually. We've been coming to Australia for 20 years. We're yeah. so lucky that you actually remember that we're down here. So. No, we always point out the fact that you're you're 11 hours ahead and you're a season ahead. So if anything, we're coming to the future. Yeah, not not, sense, not, not, not actually. We're arriving from old Europe into the new world. Yeah, Amanda and I might have a different view on Australia's futuristic credentials, but but I think you know most of us are still, I think, looking at travel through the lens of of lockdown. And bizarrely, back in December 2019, um, Martin and I have a a house on a on a shingle beach in uh, a very deserted beach in a very rural part of Suffolk, which is on the east coast of the UK. We're sort of directly opposite Rotterdam. Give a rough idea of where they are. And I remember turning to Martin and saying, "Wouldn't it be amazing if we just could be here for like the next year and not go anywhere?" Um, and of course, we were privileged and fortunate to not lose anyone close during lockdown. Uh, to not get COVID, I still haven't had COVID. Um, but really, that was the the longest time in twenty years that I had not moved anywhere. And when I say not move, we neither of us drive. So when we are five miles from the nearest shop, we are five miles from the nearest shop. Um, I had to go and look after Mum on occasions. Martin stayed at Shingle Street for six months without going any further than his legs could carry him, and it was. Amazing. Well, I, I did write a book. You wrote a book. It's, it's looking at, um, I guess you call it, it's spark. And so it's looking at the power, positivity, and pleasures of connection. That was a plug for the book. Uh, literally, it was. When's it being released? I think it's, it's uh, next year in the UK, 20. but really it was looking at, um, you know, with lockdown clearing, because this is my question to, to think about travel. And when we're back out in the world again, what is the connection? How are we connecting? why uh what's the benefit of that and a lot of that really came out of thinking you know you become the armchair traveler the armchair explorer and you think about why did people venture out it was discovery it was um you know a sense of of awe with the bigger world around them it was about meeting people but when you met them what did you do and if you remember reading any book on exploration or journey or travel there was always either the terrible encounter with, with, you know, the people who own the land you're arriving in, or there was a joyous moment of celebration, you know, when you meet somebody, meet somebody from your own country that you haven't seen, whatever. And I thought, okay, so what travel reminds us of that when we journey and meet, there is an expectation of exchange, cultural, physical, emotional, intellectual. I mean, that's what drove the, the enlightenment, you know, what 
drove uh, science across Europe. It was about this moment of, of, you know, how we felt about this sense of newness and awe and wonder. And I think this is where currently travel is finally getting back to that. If you think about what we've done the flying flop, we're now doing the extremes, you know, the Arctic Circle, Antarctica, the jungles, the new airships that are being built to take us. You know, we're traveling at cloud level beneath the cloud systems and the airship will park on the tree canopy. So we're standing above the trees, looking at the Amazon, looking at the Antarctic, looking at that ocean rolling towards. Suddenly, it's joyous again. It's awesome. And I think that's, you know, we'd forgotten about travel being about those things. And lockdown and this book reminded me that when we renew our contract with the world, really have to engage ourselves with the spark, you know, the thing that makes us alive and curious. And I guess, why bother? You know, why not do what we had to do during lockdown, stay put? Now the opportunity is out there to move forward. My question is, are we doing it in a way that's really going to fulfill us? Well, what really interests me is having invented the term pleasure, which defined that idea of sandwiching a business trip with a bit of holiday either at the end or at the beginning or if you're lucky on either side is how we're now seeing the complete reverse of that which is that and our business is doing this which is that our employees are coming to us and saying i want to go to costa rica for a month how about i spend two weeks on holiday there and then i stay there and i work for you for two weeks from costa rica because i can do my job from there and this is completely changing the travel industry, even if it doesn't know that it's happening yet, the ability of a whole transient migrant workforce to work wherever they want to is changing our understanding of the opportunity of travel because it's no longer, I'm in Madrid because I've got to go there for a dumb conference and so I might spend a couple of days going around the Prado. It's like, why would you ever go to Madrid? It's such a boring, dull, conservative city. I'm going to go to Mexico um, because I can speak Spanish, and I'm going to live in Mexico for two weeks and also work for Mexico for two weeks. And, it's and Studio Legal in Melbourne did that over Christmas. Everyone had two weeks holiday and then two weeks to be wherever you wanted. Oh, so a lot idea. of um, their team with families got a beach place for a month, you know, down at the peninsula. First two weeks was holiday, second two weeks working and then their family was still there so they could be with their families at night so there were other people in the netherlands there were people like literally everywhere all over the globe and i thought what a great thing to do really fabulous i'm, I'm really interested in the idea of how travel delivers context so i always find that you know i can be the other side of the world and i learn a lot more about my myself and you know my perspective of my life when i'm not in it and I'm curious how that applies to the work you do and how you, you know, trends when you displace them, you know, what you learn about them and how you stress test them like you were talking about before. Well, look, one of the, the sort of quotes that we used when we set the business up over 20 years ago was from the American writer and thinker William Gibson, the future has already happened. It just isn't very well distributed. And so that, that sense that he's trying to help us to understand that the future has already happened, is already happening, it's just there are patches, there are pockets, there are parts of the planet that are moving ahead of other bits. And it's that classic thing of, of you know, when you looked at the hipster movement, for example, and you went to Brooklyn. So if, 
you were in a lifestyle business and you really wanted to understand what was going on with coffee and buns and fixed bikes, you went to Brooklyn because that's where those individuals who were ahead of the curve in that trend, in that movement, were living, or they were in Hoxton, or they were in Brunswick, you know, um, but you weren't going to find them in Rose Bay in Sydney. And so you needed to know where to look. And so part of our job has always been that we are traveling to parts of the world where we can see the future happening, where it has already happened. Because by immersing ourselves in that context, that's where we really can start to understand how it's likely to, to bottom out, as it were, for the rest of us. And isn't that great when you're traveling, you know, you go to one country, you know, you see something, you go, that was great. And then by the time you get to the second and then the third, you've got a much better picture, uh, you know, of that zeitgeist or that feeling that's changing or moving that has already happened. When you've been to three countries, it's it just becomes clearer and clearer and all of a sudden your perspective has changed or new or refreshed. Uh, Amanda's got way. my favourite um, quote about travel when I, when she was on my podcast. Um, what was it? It was, uh, I don't visit a place, I live there temporarily. Yeah, I, I actually, I've heard you mention I, this. Honestly, I, I sit down, at the, I get to a coffee shop and I just have the full movie fantasy that I, I live there. And for me, you it's know, going to the supermarket. Yes. It's absolutely going to a absolutely. local supermarket. Yeah, normal bits yeah. in the supermarket. It's not yeah. just the food counter. It's going to, you know, the... the um, electrical aisles. The electrical aisles, yes. the, the uh, washing, cleaning section. Because you realise, again, hygiene, whether it's, it's what I call plate hygiene or personal hygiene, tells you so much about a culture. Ab- absolutely. And, and behaviours and how people live in the world. And, you know, the yeah. other bit is, obviously, you know, w- you know, we go to pubs, you go to restaurants, you go to... to Perhaps, but just standing on the street corner and watching. So take an average street and look at who goes past. Like, for example, in Sydney, I noticed, you know, given that we come from a city in London, where pretty much uh, bikes are not just familiar, but it's a, a fairly standard mode of transport. Then to be transformed to Sydney and realize that, you know, bikes were not just noticeable by their absence, but those who were cycling were determined to get from A to B in the quickest, most annoying amount of time possible. So the notion of, of the, um, the cyclist as a core part of, of just city living neighborhood activity was completely wiped out. It's sort of in Melbourne, but on the fringes. So again, that told me that the energy policy of the city is different. Its policies about transport are still focused on the car. It doesn't quite understand the nature of precincts need to work with people first not vehicles. And then I begin to build up, well, how do trees work in this environment? You know, how are we looking at, at, at them buildings? Because we're still building up, where increasingly we know that uh, bikes in cities, or rather cities with bikes, buildings are built lower, and they're stretching out into the suburbs. What's also happening? There are new micro verbs appearing that mimic the characteristics of villages, but with the values and, and context of city. So we call it, you know, the latte factor. Where do you get great coffee in the suburbs? So I think that just that moment of a corner standing and pausing, and to your point, you're taking from one city a sense of how the plan works. So with cycling, I'm now in a city where cycling is just not prevalent. But when I mentioned it to a few people, they were slightly kind of dismissive of the idea that cycling could be a core part of a city transit system, which again told me something about the politics about mm. the lifestyle, about 
did I then think that Sydney was more mid-centre or left-leaning than Melbourne? Well, without ever looking at the political voting system, I could tell you which way Sydney would vote in the next election. Yes. Based yes. on the absence of bikes in the street. And again, I just feel that that's, that's the great observational process that forecasters and researchers and any creative goes through is, you know, the Sherlock Holmes principle. I don't need to see the whole pattern. I just need to see a fragment and then I begin to understand. I can infer from that what the thing is. It's not a drop of water, it's a lake. It's and this so is how it looks. true. I mean, to see the bikes come off the train at Copenhagen Station and into the main street is just like, this is a different headset. And to see a 65-year-old woman on a bicycle with straight grey hair cruising down the street, it's like... And she's the queen. It's it's different. And that is the thing that I think you I would, get. I wouldn't read too much into Sydney, though. It's you. an anomaly as a city, yeah. I think. I think, I, you know, but in some ways it's a great anomaly, isn't it? That's why it's the beauty of it and the challenges. And again, this is where, I, you know, I feel travel um, not just opens your opportunity to see different, but it also allows you to, to understand that, you know, um, you can make mistakes about cities. But the more you know about cities, the more you get those nuances. But it's a part of Sydney. It's not. Kind of the wider pictures, not all of it. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. I think we'll move to some of the faster questions. So, kind of a quick fire round. The first question I've got is drawing or writing for creation? Um, Neither. Thinking and talking. Beautiful. I think writing and thinking. Beautiful. I love it. Front of house or back of house? Um, I would say I'm 100% back of house. Wow. Yeah. Surprise. Look, I was an actor. Uh, so, and I deliberately moved away from that. So I don't want to be front of house at all. Everything I do is about back of house. All about what happens behind the scenes. As I always say, it's where the power sits. What about mm. you, Martin? I think uh, I kind of demi front. I think it's probably the best way of looking at it because <laughs> I, I haven't had that answer before. <laughs> I quite, I quite like the idea of front and do my best to. But actually, you know, I'm probably one of the few people in the business that does like. Uh, particularly in thinking and developing projects to do it alone once I've gathered all the thing I need to do. And that requires a lot of back of house thinking. But I think Demi Front. I love it. The best answer we've had the best so far. Bit to me. Um, Martin, how would you describe your dress sense? I think it's, it's, it's kind of monochrome with touches, slight mild touches of flamboyance. But again, that's probably a block color, but generally monochrome, which is blues, whites, blacks. Navies. I mean, it sounds, it sounds like a priest. In fact, somebody said to me, probably in a former life, you could have been a priest. But were there little flounce here and there, which could be the queer bit? But, you know, generally, monocle. What about you, Chris? Oh, my goodness. I think I'm veering towards elderly boy, which is terrifying. <laughs> I just, I still can't grow out of my sneakers and my baggy shorts. Elderly boy. Wow. So tell me, how heavy was your suitcase coming to Australia? Are you essentials or options people mm, um okay we didn't do too bad on this trip after 20 odd years so it was between us only three bags uh total weight was uh under 44 kilos that's pretty good um it'll be heavier going back because we've bought some books and been given some uh and we've bought clothes while we've been here um, I'm very proud of the fact that we went round Europe last month, hand luggage only. 
for the entire really? trip. Yeah. yeah, this three is countries, for how long? Thirty days, three countries, hand so that's luggage only. Ten or seven kilos. Uh, it's one of those little wheelies up into the maybe 10, you know maybe the over, 10. overhead. That was it. Yeah. But to put put that in context, because we did, um, you know, this is years of practice and and kind yes. of. I guess, de what I call denuding the bag. I remember once we arrived in the south of France with a, actually it was not a suitcase, it was like one of those massive um, trunks full of books. And I'd set up, which is probably a library of maybe 80 books and didn't get to read any of them because when people hear that we were running a library free out of a room, all of the books were borrowed and never returned. So our suitcase was so, was so light. It was so light coming But back. it reminded us that actually a lot of the time, including things like books, uh, usually they're available in the country you're arriving in. So just again, we now set our book list, order it on arrival. So we're reading while we're here and then leave them on departure. I have this conundrum every time I go overseas and it's service or interior. What are you guys? Well, both have to match, don't they? they? You have to really, the choice is that the hotel delivers on both, um, which is why Joel and I have a favorite hotel in common, uh, which, which is, is the Upper House in Hong Kong. I'll be there next week, so I'll say hello. Oh, Beautiful. What about you, Martin? Favorite um, hotel? I think service or interior? I think it's a bit of both because we, we like the Cologne in the south of France, which is in Saint Paul. Um, you know, great tiny um, hotel pool terrace. But I always think when I read the TripAdvisor notes about the Cologne, this was the most excoriating comments about, you know, the food was bad, the rooms were small, the bar staff were rude, et cetera, et cetera. No gym. No, gym, no flat screen TV, nowhere for kids good. to do gaming. I was thinking, this is my idea of a great hotel. Yeah, so perfect. I always think that the Cologne on that level, because it represents a different value system and Claridge's and the Corinthian, but certainly Claridge's on the other, were to match service, expectation, and that consummate sense of luxury that settles on you like a cashmere blanket is, you know, the great Claridge's. And I think um, Upper House would come as a, as a gracious second. I think the Corinthian London, which is, you know, now run by Thomas, who used to be um, the GM at Claridge's and has transferred everything this hotel, his love, his care, his consideration. Unfortunately, there is a chandelier there that unless the chandelier goes, it's never going to be anything other than one of the great best hotels. But the chandelier was designed by, I think, the hotel's wife's owner. Owner's wife. Owner's wife. And therefore, it suffers from all of the consequential tastes of somebody. Maybe it might fall down and break. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it'll fall down one time. So, yeah, I, I, you know, but that it has to be the club. I love time. it. I've seen it on your Instagram quite a lot, actually, over the years. It looks very beautiful. Um, we love quotes here. Um, we're always into quotes. And obviously the future hasn't happened. It, sorry, the future has happened. It just hasn't been distributed yet. We also use because, and we use it often in relation to skill um, and people. You know, a lot of younger people are already doing what they need to do and doing it brilliantly. They just haven't been discovered yet in a way and it hasn't been distributed. Are there any quotes that you adore apart from that one? <laughs> I mean, we've, we've kind of given you our favourite quote, I think, already, which is dare to know, the Perry Aude. But I mean, for us, that 
sums up so much of the way we think and the way we try to behave. It's it's a good thing. Thank you so much for being here Thank today. You. We've we've loved having you here, and um, hopefully you'll come back to Australia next year. Thank you. Pleasure.